CD3 Who is this girl? Madame Frout, headmistress of the Frout Academy and pioneer of the Frout method of learning through fun, often found herself thinking that when she had to interview Miss Susan. Of course the girl was an employee, but... Well, Madame Frout wasn't very good at discipline, which was possibly why she'd invented the method, which didn't require any. She generally relied on talking to people in a jolly tone of voice until they gave in out of sheer embarrassment on her behalf. Miss Susan didn't appear ever to be embarrassed about anything. Uh, the reason I've called you here, Susan, is that, uh, um, the, the reason is... Madame Frout faltered. There have been complaints, said Miss Susan. Uh, no, uh, although uh, Miss Smith has told me that the children coming up from your class are you know, restless. Their, their reading ability is, she says, rather unfortunately advanced. Miss Smith thinks a good book is about a boy and his dog chasing a big red ball, said Miss Susan. My children have learned to expect a plot. No wonder they get impatient. We're reading grim fairy tales at the moment. That is rather rude of you, Susan. No, madam, that is rather polite of me. It would have been rude of me to say that there is a circle of hell reserved for teachers like Miss Smith. But that's a dreadful... Madame Frout stopped and began again. "'You should not be teaching them to read at all yet!' she snapped. But it was the snap of a soggy twig. Madame Frout cringed back in her chair when Miss Susan looked up. The girl had this terrible ability to give you her full attention. You had to be a better person than Madame Frout to survive in the intensity of that attention. It inspected your soul, putting little red circles around the bits it didn't like. When Miss Susan looked at you, it was as if she was giving you marks. "'I mean,' the headmistress mumbled, "'a childhood is a time for play and learning,' said Miss Susan. "'Learning through play,' said Madame Frout, grateful to find familiar territory. "'After all, at kittens and puppies grow up to be cats and dogs, which are even less interesting,' said Miss Susan, "'whereas children should grow up to be adults.' Madame Frout sighed. There was no way she was going to make any progress. It was always like this. She knew she was powerless. News about Miss Susan had got around. Worried parents who turned to learning through play because they despaired of their offspring ever learning by paying attention to what anyone said were finding them coming home a little quieter, a little more thoughtful, and with a pile of homework which, amazingly, they did without prompting and even with the dog helping them and they came home with stories about Miss Susan. Miss Susan spoke all languages. Miss Susan knew everything about everything. Miss Susan had wonderful ideas for school trips. And that was particularly puzzling, because, as far as Madame Frout knew, none had been officially organised. There was invariably a busy silence from Miss Susan's classroom when she went past. This annoyed her. It harked back to the bad old days when children were regimented in classrooms that were no better than torture chambers for little minds. But other teachers said that there were noises. Sometimes there was the faint sound of waves, or a jungle. Just once Madame Frout could have sworn, if she was the sort to swear, that as she passed there was a full-scale battle going on. This had often been the case with learning through play, but this time the addition of trumpets, the swish of arrows and the screams of the fallen seemed to be going too far. She'd thrown open the door and felt something hiss through the air above her head. Miss Susan had been sitting on a stool, reading from a book, with the class cross-legged in a quiet and fascinated semicircle around her. It was the sort of old-fashioned image that Madame Frout hated— as if the children were supplicants around some sort of altar of knowledge. No one had said anything. All the watching children and Miss Susan made it clear in polite silence that they were waiting for her to go away. She'd flounced back into the corridor, and the door had clicked shut behind her. Then she noticed the long, crude arrow that was still vibrating in the opposite wall of the corridor. Madame Frout had looked at the door, with its familiar green paint, and then back at the arrow, which had gone. 
she transferred Jason to Miss Susan's class. It had been a cruel thing to do, but Madame Frout considered that there was now some kind of undeclared war going on. If children were weapons, Jason would have been banned by international treaty. Jason had doting parents and an attention span of minus several seconds, except when it came to inventive cruelty to small furry animals, when he could be quite patient. Jason kicked, punched, bit and spat. His artwork had even frightened the life out of Miss Smith, who could generally find something nice to say about any child. He was definitely a boy with special needs. In the view of the staff room, these began with an exorcism. Madame Frout had stooped to listening at the keyhole. She had heard Jason's first tantrum of the day, and then silence. She couldn't quite make out what Miss Susan said next. When she found an excuse to venture into the classroom half an hour later, Jason was helping two little girls to make a cardboard rabbit. Later his parents said they were amazed at the change, although apparently now he would only go to sleep with the light on. Madame Frouts tried to question her newest teacher. After all, glowing references were all very well, but she was an employee after all. The trouble was, Susan had a way of saying things to her Madame Frout had found, so that she went away feeling quite satisfied, and only realised that she hadn't really had a proper answer at all when she was back in her office, by which time it was always too late. And it continued to be too late, because suddenly the school had a waiting list. Parents were fighting to get their children enrolled in Miss Susan's class. As for some of the stories they had brought home, well, everyone knew children had such vivid imaginations, didn't they? Even so, there was this essay by Richenda Higgs. Madame Frout fumbled for her glasses, which she was too vain to wear all the time, and kept on a string around her neck, and looked at it again. In its entirety, it read... A man with all bones came to talk to us. He was not scary at all. He had a big white horse. We painted the horse. He had a scythe. He told us interesting things and to be careful when crossing the road. Madame Frout handed the paper across the desk to Miss Susan, who looked at it gravely. She pulled out a red pencil, made a few little alterations, then handed it back. Well, said Madame Frout, Yes, she's not very good at punctuation, I'm afraid. A good attempt at scythe, though. Who? What's this about a big white horse in the classroom? Madame Frout managed. Miss Susan looked at her pityingly and said, Madam, who could possibly bring a horse into a classroom? We're up two flights of stairs here. Madame Frout was not going to be deterred this time. She held up another short essay. Today we were talked at by Mr. Slumpf, who he is a bogeyman, but he is nice now. He told us what to do about the other kind. You can put the blanket over your head, but it is better if you put it over the bogeyman's head, then he think he do not exist and he is vanishes. He told us lots of stores about people he jump out on, and he said, Sins, Miss, is our teacher, he think no bogeymen will be in our houses, because one thing a bogey does not like is Miss finding him. Bogeymen, Susan, said Madame Frat. What imaginations children have, said Miss Susan with a straight face. Are you introducing young children to the occult, said Madame Frat suspiciously. This sort of thing caused a lot of trouble with parents, she was well aware. Oh, yes. What? Why? So that it doesn't come as a shock, said Miss Susan calmly. But Mrs. Robertson told me that her Emma was going around the house looking for monsters in the cupboards, and up until now she's always been afraid of them. Did she have a stick? said Susan. She got her father's sword. Good for her. Look, Susan... "'I think I see what you're trying to do,' said Madame Frout, who didn't really. "'But parents do not understand this sort of thing.' "'Yes,' said Miss Susan. "'Sometimes I really think people ought to have to pass a proper exam before they're allowed to be parents. "'Not just the practical, I mean.' "'Nevertheless, we must respect their views,' said Madame Frout, but rather weakly, because occasionally she thought the same thing.' There had been the matter of parents' evening. 
Madame had been too tense to pay much attention to what her newest teacher was doing. All she'd been aware of was Miss Susan sitting and talking quietly to the couples, right up to the point where Jason's mother had picked up her chair and chased Jason's father out of the room. Next day, a huge bunch of flowers had arrived for Susan from Jason's mother, and an even bigger bunch from Jason's father. Quite a few other couples had also come away from Miss Susan's desk looking worried or harassed. Certainly Madame Frout, when the time came for next term's fees to be paid, had never known people cough up so readily. And there it was again. Madame Frout, the headmistress, who had to worry about reputations and costs and fees, just occasionally heard the distant voice of Miss Frout, who had been quite a good, if rather shy, teacher, and it was whistling and cheering Susan on. Susan looked concerned. "'You are not satisfied with my work, madam?' Madame Frout was stuck. No, she wasn't satisfied, but for all the wrong reasons, and it was dawning on her, as this interview progressed, that she didn't dare sack Miss Susan, or worse, let her leave of her own accord. If she set up a school and news got round, the learning-through-play school would simply hemorrhage pupils, and, importantly, fees.' "'Well, uh, of course, and uh, no, no, not, uh, in many ways,' she began, and became aware that Miss Susan was staring past her. "'There was—' Madame Frout groped for her glasses and found their string had got tangled with the buttons of her blouse. She peered at the mantelpiece and tried to make sense of the blur. "'Why, it, it looks like a, a white rat in a little black robe,' she said, "'and walking on its hind legs, too. Can you see it?' "'I can't imagine how a rat would wear a robe,' said Miss Susan. "'Then she sighed and snapped her fingers. "'The finger-snapping wasn't essential, but time stopped. "'At least it stopped for everyone but Miss Susan. "'And for the rat on the mantelpiece. "'Which was, in fact, the skeleton of a rat, "'although this was not preventing it from trying to steal Madame Frout's jar "'of boiled sweets for good children. "'Susan strode over and grasped the collar of the tiny robe.' "'Squeak!' said the death of rats. "'I thought it was you,' snapped Susan. "'How dare you come here again? "'I thought you'd got the message the other day. "'And don't think I didn't see you "'when you turned up to collect Henry the Hamster last month. "'Do you know how hard it is to teach geography "'when you can see someone kicking the poo out of a treadmill?' "'The rat sniggered. "'And you're eating a sweet. "'Put it in the bin right now.' Susan dropped the rat onto the desk in front of the temporarily frozen Madame Frout and paused. She'd always tried to be good about this sort of thing, but sometimes you just had to acknowledge who you were. So she pulled open the bottom drawer to check the level in the bottle that was Madame's shield and comforter in the wonderful world that was education, and was pleased to see that the old girl was going a bit easier on the stuff these days. Most people have some means of filling up the gap between perception and reality, and, after all, in those circumstances there are far worse things than gin. She also spent a little while going through Madame's private papers, and this has to be said about Susan. It did not occur to her that there was anything wrong about this, although she'd quite understand that it was probably wrong if you weren't Susan Stowe Hellet, of course. The papers were in quite a good safe that would have occupied a competent thief for at least twenty minutes. The fact that the door swung open at her touch suggested that special rules applied here. No door was closed to Miss Susan. It ran in the family. Some genetics are passed on via the soul. When she'd brought herself up to date on the school's affairs, mostly to indicate to the rat that she wasn't just someone who could be summoned at a moment's notice, she stood up. "'All right,' she said wearily. "'You're just going to pester me, aren't you, for ever and ever and ever?' The death of rats looked at her with its skull on one side. "'Squeak!' it said winsomely. "'Well, yes, I like him,' she said, in a way. "'But I mean, you know, it's not right. "'Why does he need me? He's death. "'He's not exactly powerless. I'm just human.' The rat squeaked again, jumped down onto the floor and ran through the closed door. It reappeared for a moment and beckoned to her. "'Oh, all right,' said Susan to herself. Make that mostly human. Tick. And who is this loot say? Sooner or later, every novice had to ask this rather complex question. 
Sometimes it would be years before they found out that the little man who swept their floors and uncomplainingly carted away the contents of the dormitory cesspit, and occasionally came out with outlandish foreign sayings, was the legendary hero they'd been told they would meet one day. And then, when they'd confronted him, the brightest of them confronted themselves. Mostly sweepers came from the villages in the valley. They were part of the staff of the monastery, but they had no status. They did all the tedious, unregarded jobs. They were figures in the background, pruning the cherry trees, washing the floors, cleaning out the carp pools, and always sweeping. They had no names. That is, a thoughtful novice would understand that the sweepers must have names, some form by which they were known to other sweepers, but within the temple grounds, at least, they had no names, only instructions. No one knew where they went at night. They were just sweepers. But so was Lutze. One day a group of senior novices for mischief kicked over the little shrine that Lutze kept besides his sleeping mat. Next morning no sweepers turned up for work. They stayed in their huts with the doors barred. After making inquiries, the abbot, who at that time was fifty years old again, summoned the three novices to his room. There were three brooms leaning against the wall. He spoke as follows. You know that the dreadful battle of five cities did not happen because the messenger got there in time? They did. They learned this early in their studies, and they bowed nervously because this was the abbot after all. And you know then that when the messenger's horse threw a shoe, he espied a man trudging beside the road, carrying a small portable forge and pushing an anvil on a barrow? They knew. And you know that man was Lutze? They did. You surely know that Jandra Trap, Grand Master of Oki Doki, Toro Fu and Chang Fu, has only ever yielded to one man? They knew. And you know that man is Lutze? They did. And you know the little shrine you kicked over last night? They knew. You know it had an owner? There was silence. Then the brightest of the novices looked up at the abbot in horror, swallowed, picked up one of the three brooms and walked out of the room. The other two were slower of brain and had to follow the story all the way through to the end. Then one of them said, But it was only a sweeper's shrine. You will take up the brooms and sweep, said the abbot, and you will sweep every day, and you will sweep until the day you find Lutze, and dare to say, Sweeper, it was I who knocked over and scattered your shrine, and now I will, in humility, accompany you to the dojo of the tenth gym in order to learn the right way. Only then, if you are still able, may you resume your studies here. Understood? And the story continues. The novice who had protested that it was only the shrine of a sweeper ran away from the temple. The student who had said nothing remained a sweeper for the rest of his life. And the student who had seen the inevitable shape of the story, went, after much agonising and several months of meticulous sweeping, to Lutze and knelt and asked to be shown the right way. Whereupon the sweeper took him to the dojo of the tenth gym, with its terrible multi-bladed fighting machines and its fearsome serrated weapons such as the Klong-Klong and the Upsi. The story runs that the sweeper then opened a cupboard at the back of the dojo and produced a broom and spake thusly. One hand here and the other here, understand? People never get it right. Use good even strokes and let the broom do most of the work. Never try to sweep up a big pile. You'll end up sweeping every bit of dust twice. Use your dustpan wisely and remember a small brush for the corners. Older monks sometimes complained, but someone would always say, Remember that Lutze's way is not our way. Remember he learned everything by sweeping unheeded while students were being educated. Remember he has been everywhere and done many things. Perhaps he is a little strange, but remember that he walked into a citadel full of armed men and traps and nevertheless saw to it that the pash of Muntab choked innocently on a fishbone. 
no monk is better than Lutze at finding the time and the place. Some who did not know might say, What is this way that gives him so much power? And they would be told, It is the way of Mrs. Marietta Cosmopolite, 3 Quirm Street, Ankh-Morpork. Rooms to rent very reasonable. No, we don't understand it either. Some subsendential rubbish, apparently. Tick. Lutze listened to the senior monks while leaning on his broom. Listening was an art he had developed over the years, having learned that if you listened hard and long enough, people would tell you more than they thought they knew. Soto is a good field operative, he said at last. Weird, but good. The fall even showed up on the mandala, said Rinpo. The boy knew none of the appropriate actions. Soto said he'd done it reflexively. He said he thought the boy was as close to null as he has ever witnessed. He had him put on a cart for the mountains within the hour. He then spent three whole days performing the closing of the flower at the Guild of Thieves, where the boy had apparently been left as a baby. The closure was successful. We authorised the runtime of two procrastinators. Perhaps a few people will have faint memories, but the Guild is a large and busy place. No brothers, no sisters, no love of parents, just the Brotherhood of Thieves, said Lutze sadly. He was, however, a good thief. I'll bet. How old is he? Sixteen or seventeen, it appears. Too old to teach, then? The senior monks exchanged glances. We cannot teach him anything, said the master of novices. Hey! Lutze held up a skinny hand. Let me guess. He knows it already. It's as though he's being told something that had momentarily slipped his memory, said Rinpo. And then he gets bored and angry. He's not all there, in my opinion. Lutze scratched in his stained beard. Mystery boy, he said thoughtfully, naturally talented. And we ask ourselves, want a potty, want a potty poo? Why now, why at this time? said the abbot, chewing the foot of a toy yak. Ah, but is it not said there is a time and place for everything? said Lutze. Anyway, reverend sirs, you have taught pupils for hundreds of years. I am but a sweeper. Absent-mindedly, he stuck out his hand just as the yak left the fumbling fingers of the abbot and caught it in mid-air. Lutze, said the master of novices, to be brief, we were unable to teach you, remember? Uh, but then I found my way, said Lutze. Will you teach him, said the abbot. The boy needs to mm, brum, find himself. Is it not written, I have only one pair of hands, said Lutze? Rinpo looked at the master of novices. I don't know, he said. None of us ever see this stuff you quote. Still looking thoughtful, as if his mind were busy elsewhere, Lutze said, It can only be here and now, for it is written, It never rains but it pours. Rinpo looked puzzled, and then enlightenment dawned. A jug, he said, looking pleased. A jug never rains but it pours. Lutze shook his head sadly. And the sound of one hand clapping is a clk, he said. Very well, your reverence. I will help him find a way. Will there be anything else, reverence sirs? Tick. Lobsang stood up when Lutze returned to the anteroom, but he did it hesitantly, embarrassed at appearing to show respect. Okay, here are the rules, said Lutze, walking straight past. Word one is, you don't call me master, and I don't name you after some damn insect. It's not my job to discipline you, it's yours. For it is written, I can't be having with that kind of thing. Do what I tell you, and we'll get along fine, all right? What? You want me as an apprentice? said Lobsang, running to keep up. No, I don't want you as an apprentice, not at my age. But you're going to be, so we both better make the best of it, OK? And you will teach me everything? Oh, I don't know about everything. I mean, I don't know much forensic mineralogy, but I will teach you all that I know that is useful to you to know, yes. When? It's getting late. At dawn tomorrow? Oh, before dawn. 
I'll wake you. Tick. Some distance away from Madame Frout's Academy in Esoteric Street were a number of gentlemen's clubs. It would be far too cynical to say that here the term gentleman was simply defined as someone who can afford $500 a year. They also had to be approved of by a great many other gentlemen who could afford the same fee. And they didn't much like the company of ladies. This was not to say that they were that kind of gentlemen, who had their own rather better decorated clubs in another part of town, where there was generally a lot more going on. These gentlemen were gentlemen of a class who were, on the whole, bullied by ladies from an early age. Their lives were steered by nurses, governesses, matrons, mothers and wives, and after four or five decades of that, the average mild-mannered gentleman gave up and escaped as politely as possible to one of these clubs, where he could snooze the afternoon away in a leather armchair with the top button of his trousers undone. One reason for this was the club food. At his club, a gentleman could find the kind of food he'd got used to at school, like spotted dick, jam roly-poly, and that perennial favourite, stodge and custard. Vitamins are eaten by wives. The most select of these clubs was Fidget's, and it operated like this. Susan didn't need to make herself invisible, because she knew that the members of Fidget's would simply not see her or believe that she really existed, even if they did. Women weren't allowed in the club at all, except under Rule 34B, which grudgingly allowed for female members of the family, or respectable married ladies over 30, to be entertained to tea in the green drawing-room between 3.15 and 4.30pm, provided at least one member of staff was present at all times. This had been the case for so long that many members now interpreted it as being the only 75 minutes in the day when women were actually allowed to exist, and therefore any women seen in the club at any other time were a figment of their imagination. In the case of Susan, in her rather strict black school-teaching outfit and button boots that somehow appeared to have higher heels when she was being Death's granddaughter, this might well have been true. The boots echoed on the marble floor as she made her way to the library. It was a mystery to her why Death had started using the place. Of course, he did have many of the qualities of a gentleman. He had a place in the country, a far dark country, was unfailingly punctual, was courteous to all those he met, and sooner or later he met everyone, was well, if soberly dressed, at home in any company, and proverbially a good horseman. The fact that he was the Grim Reaper was the only bit that didn't quite fit. Most of the overstuffed chairs in the library were occupied by contented lunchers, dozing happily under tented copies of the Ankh Morpork Times. Susan looked around until she found the copy from which projected the bottom half of a black robe and two bony feet. There was also a scythe leaning against the back of the armchair. She raised the paper. "'Good afternoon,' said Death. "'Have you had lunch? It was jam roly-poly.' "'Why do you do this, Grandfather? You know you don't sleep.' "'I find it restful. Are you well?' "'I was until the rat arrived.' "'Your career progresses. You know I care for you.' "'Thank you,' said Susan shortly. "'Now, why did—' "'Would a little small talk hurt?' Susan sighed. She knew what was behind that, and it wasn't a happy thought. It was a small, sad, and wobbly little thought, and it ran, Each of them had no one else but the other. There. It was a thought that sobbed into its own handkerchief, but it was true. Oh, Death had his manservant, Albert, and of course there was the Death of Rats, if you could call that company. And as far as Susan was concerned, well, she was partly immortal, and that was all there was to it. She could see things that were really there, which is much harder than seeing things that aren't there. Everyone does that. She could put time on and off like an overcoat. Rules that applied to everyone else, like gravity, applied to her only when she let them. And however hard you tried, this sort of thing did tend to get in the way of relationships. It was hard to deal with people when a tiny part of you saw them as a temporary collection of atoms that would not be around in another few decades. And there she met the tiny part of death that found it hard to deal with people when it thought of them as real. 
Not a day went past, but she regretted her curious ancestry. And then she'd wonder what it could possibly be like to walk the world unaware at every step of the rocks beneath your feet and the stars overhead, to have a mere five senses, to be almost blind and nearly deaf. The children are well. I liked their paintings of me. Yes, how is Albert? He is well. And not really have any small talk, Susan added to herself. There wasn't room for small talk in a big universe. The world is coming to an end. Well, that was big talk. When? Next Wednesday. Why? The auditors are back, said Death. Those evil little things? Yes. I hate them. I, of course, do not have any emotions, said Death, poker-faced as only a skull can be. What are they up to this time? I cannot say. I thought you could remember the future. Yes, but something has changed. After Wednesday there is no future. There must be something, even if it's only debris. No. After one o'clock next Wednesday there is nothing. Just one o'clock next Wednesday for ever and ever. No one will live. No one will die. That is what I now see. The future has changed. Do you understand? And what has this got to do with me? Susan knew this would sound stupid to anyone else. I would have thought the end of the world is everyone's responsibility, wouldn't you? You know what I mean. I believe this has to do with the nature of time, which is both immortal and human. There have been certain ripples. They're going to do something to time? I thought they weren't allowed to do things like that. No, but humans can. It has been done once before. No one would be that stupid. Susan stopped. Of course someone would be that stupid. Some humans would do anything to see if it was possible to do it. If you put a large switch in some cave somewhere with a sign on it saying, End of the world switch, please do not touch, the paint wouldn't even have time to dry. She thought some more. Death was watching her intensely. Then she said, Funnily enough, there is this book I've been reading to the class. I found it on my desk one day. It's called Grim Fairy Tales. Ah, happy tales for little folk, said Death, without a trace of irony. Which is mostly about wicked people dying in horrible ways. It's strange, really. The children seem quite happy with the idea. It doesn't seem to worry them. Death said nothing. "'Except in the case of the glass clock of Bart Shushine,' said Susan, watching his skull. "'They found that quite upsetting, even though it's got a kind of happy ending.' "'It may be because the story is true.' Susan had known death long enough not to argue. "'I think I understand,' she said. "'You made sure the book was there.' "'Yes. Oh, the rubbish about the handsome prince and so on is an obvious addition.' The auditors did not invent the clock, of course. That was the work of a madman. But they are good at adapting. They cannot create, but they can adapt. And the clock is being rebuilt. Was time really stopped? Trapped. Only for a moment. But the results still lie all around us. History was shattered, fragmented. Pasts were no longer linked to futures. The history monks had to rebuild it practically from scratch. Susan did not waste breath saying things like, that's impossible at a time like this. Only people who believed that they lived in the real world said things like that. That must have taken some time, she said. Time, of course, was not the issue. They use a form of years based on the human pulse rate. Of those years, it took about 500. But if history was shattered, where did they get... Death steepled his fingers. Think temporally, Susan. I believe they stole some time from some earlier age of the world where it was being wasted on a lot of reptiles. What is time to a big lizard after all? Have you seen those procrastinators the monks use? Wonderful things. They can move time, store it, stretch it. Quite ingenious. As for when this happened, 
the question also makes no sense. When the bottle is broken, does it matter where the glass was hit? The shards of the event itself no longer exist in this rebuilt history in any case. Hold on, hold on. How could you take a piece of, oh, some old century and stitch it into a modern one? Wouldn't people notice that? Susan flailed a bit. Oh, that people have got the wrong armour and the buildings are all wrong and they're still in the middle of wars that happened centuries ago. In my experience, Susan, within their heads, too many humans spend a lot of time in the middle of wars that happened centuries ago. Very insightful, but what I meant was, you must not confuse the content with the container, Death sighed. You are mostly human. You need a metaphor. An object lesson is clearly in order. Come. He stood up and stalked into the dining room across the hall. There were still a few late lunches frozen in their work, napkins tucked under their chins in an atmosphere of happy carbohydrates. Death walked up to a table that had been laid for dinner and gripped a corner of the tablecloth. Time is the cloth, he said. The cutlery and plates are the events that take place within time. There was a drum roll. Susan glanced down. The death of rats was seated in front of a tiny drum kit. Observe. Death pulled the cloth away. There was a rattle of cutlery and a moment of uncertainty regarding a vase of flowers, but almost all the tableware remained in place. I see, said Susan. The table remains laid, but the cloth can now be used for another meal. However, you knocked the salt over, said Susan. The technique is not perfect. And there are stains on the cloth from the previous meal, Grandfather. Death beamed. Yes, he said. As metaphors go, it is rather good, don't you think? People would notice. Really? Humans are the most unobservant creatures in the universe. Oh, there are lots of anomalies, of course, a certain amount of spilled salt, but historians explain them away. They are so very useful in that respect. There was something called the rules Susan knew. They weren't written down in the same way that mountains weren't written down. They were far more fundamental to the operation of the universe than mere mechanical things like gravity. The auditors might hate the untidiness caused by the emergence of life, but the rules did not allow them to do anything about it. The ascent of mankind must have been a boon to them. At last there was a species that could be persuaded to shoot itself in the foot. "'I don't know what you expect me to do about it,' she said. "'Everything that you can,' said Death. I, by custom and practice, have other duties at this time. Such as? Important matters. That you can't tell me about? That I do not intend to tell you about. But they are important. In any case, your insight is valuable. You have ways of thinking that will be useful. You can go where I cannot. I have only seen the future, but you can change it. Where is this clock being rebuilt? I cannot tell. I have done well to deduce what I have. The issue is clouded from me. Why? Because things have been hidden. Someone is involved who is not subject to me. Death looked awkward. An immortal? Someone subject to someone else. You're going to have to be a lot clearer than that. Susan, you know that I adopted and raised your mother and found a suitable husband for her. Yes, yes, snapped Susan. How could I forget? I look in my mirror every day. This is difficult for me. The truth is I was not the only one to involve myself like that. Why look surprised? Is it not well known that gods do this sort of thing all the time? Gods, yes, but people like you... People like us are still like people. Susan did an unusual thing and listened. That's not an easy task for a teacher. Susan, you will know that we who are outside humanity... I'm not outside humanity, said Susan sharply. I just have a few extra talents. I did not mean you, of course. I meant the others... Who are not human and yet part of humanity's universe. 
war, and destiny, and pestilence, and the rest of us. We are envisaged as human by humans, and thus in various fashions we take on some aspects of humanity. It can be no other way. Even the very body shape forces upon our minds a certain way of observing the universe. We pick up human traits. Curiosity, anger, restlessness. This is basic stuff, Grandfather. Yes, and you know, therefore, that some of us take an interest in humanity. I know I am one of the results. Yes, uh, and some of us take an interest which is, uh, more... Interesting? Personal. And you have heard me speak of the personification of time? You didn't tell me much. She lives in a palace of glass, you once said. Susan felt a small, shameful, and yet curiously satisfying sensation in seeing death discomfited. He looks like someone who is being forced to reveal a skeleton in the closet. Yes, uh, she fell in love with a human. How very romantic, said Susan, inserting the K. Now she was being childishly perverse, she knew, but life as death's granddaughter was not easy, and occasionally she had the irresistible urge to annoy. Ah, uh, a pun or play on words, said Death wearily, although I suspect you are merely trying to be tiresome. Well, that sort of thing used to happen a lot in antiquity, didn't it, said Susan. Poets were always falling in love with moonlight or hyacinths or something, and goddesses were forever. But that was real, said Death. How real do you mean? Time had a son. How could time had a son? Someone mostly mortal. Someone like you. Tick. A member of the Clockmakers Guild called on Jeremy once a week. It was nothing formal. In any case, there was often some work for him to do, or some results to be collected, because whatever else you might say about him, the boy had a genius for clocks. Informally, the visit was also a delicate way to make sure that the lad was taking his medicine and wasn't noticeably crazy. The clockmakers were well aware that the intricate mechanisms of the human brain could occasionally throw a screw. The Guild's members tended to be meticulous people, always in pursuit of an inhuman accuracy, and this took its toll. It could cause problems. Springs were not the only things that got wound up. The Guild Committee were, by and large, kind and understanding men. They were not, on the whole, men accustomed to guile. Dr Hopkins, the Guild's secretary, was surprised when the door of Jeremy's shop was opened by a man who appeared to have survived a very serious accident. Er, uh, I'm here to see Mr. Jeremy, he managed. Yes, sir, the master is in, sir. And you, um, are... Igor, sir, Mr. Jeremy was kind enough to take me on, sir. You work for him, said Dr. Hopkins, looking Igor up and down. Yes, sir. Hmm. Have you been standing too close to some dangerous machinery? No, sir. He is in the workshop, sir. Mr. Igor, said Dr. Hopkins, as he was ushered into the shop. You do know that Mr. Jeremy has to take medicine, don't you? Yes, sir. He mentions it often. And he, um, his general health is good, sir. He is enthusiastic for his work, sir. Bright-eyed and bussy-tailed. Bussy-tailed, eh? said Dr. Hopkins weakly. Hmm. Mr. Jeremy doesn't usually keep servants. I'm afraid he threw a clock at the head of the last assistant he had. Really, sir? Hmm. He hasn't thrown a clock at your head, has he? No, sir. He acts quite normally, said Igor, a man with four thumbs and stitches all round his neck. He opened the door into the workshop. Dr. Hopkins, Mr. Jeremy, I will make some tea, sir. Jeremy was sitting bolt upright at the table, his eyes gleaming. Ah, doctor, he said. How kind of you to come. Dr. Hopkins took in the workshop. There had been changes. Quite a large piece of lathen plaster wall covered in pencilled sketches had been removed from somewhere and stood on an easel on one side of the room. 
The benches, usually the resting places of clocks in various stages of assembly, were covered with lumps of crystal and slabs of glass, and there was a strong smell of acid. Um, something new, Dr. Hopkins ventured. Yes, Doctor, I've been examining the properties of certain superdense crystals, said Jeremy. Dr. Hopkins took a deep breath of relief. Ah, geology, a wonderful hobby. "'I am so glad it's not good to think about clocks all the time, you know,' he added jovially, and with a soupçon of hope. Jeremy's brow wrinkled, as if the brain behind it was trying to fit around an unfamiliar concept. "'Yes,' he said at last. "'Did you know, Doctor, that copper octirate vibrates exactly two million four hundred thousand and seventy-eight times a second? "'As much as that, eh?' said Dr. Hopkins. "'My word!' "'Indeed,' and light shone through a natural prism of octivium quartz, splits into only three colours. Fascinating, said Dr. Hopkins, reflecting that it could be worse. Is it me, or is there a rather sharp smell in the air? Drains, said Jeremy. We've been cleaning them with acid, uh, which is what we need the acid for, for cleaning the drains. Drains, eh? Dr. Hopkins blinked. He wasn't at home in the world of drains. There was a crackling sound, and blue light flickered under the door of the kitchen. "'You're a man, Igor,' he said. "'All right, is he?' Uh, "'Yes, thank you, Doctor. He's from Uberwald, you know.' "'Oh, very big, Uberwald. Very big country.' That was one of only two things Dr. Hopkins knew about Uberwald. He coughed nervously and mentioned the other one. "'People there can be a bit strange, I've heard.' "'Igor says he's never had anything to do with that kind of person,' said Jeremy calmly. "'Good, good. That is good,' said the doctor. Jeremy's fixed smile was beginning to unnerve him. "'He, um, seems to have a lot of scars and stitches.' "'Yes, it's cultural.' "'Cultural, is it?' Dr. Hopkins looked relieved. "'He was a man who tried to see the best in everybody,' but the city had got rather complicated since he was a boy, with dwarfs and trolls and golems and even zombies. He wasn't sure he liked everything that was happening, but a lot of it was cultural, apparently, and you couldn't object to that, so he didn't. Cultural sort of solved problems by explaining that they weren't really there. The light under the door went out. A moment later, Igor came in with two cups of tea on a tray. It was good tea, the doctor had to admit, but the acid in the air was making his eyes water. "'So, um, how is the work on the new navigation tables going?' he said. "'Gingerbethgetha,' said Igor by his ear. "'Oh, er, uh, yes. Oh, I say, these are rather good, Mr. Igor.' "'Take two, sir.' "'Thank you.' Now Dr. Hopkins sprayed crumbs as he spoke. "'The navigation tables,' he repeated. Uh, "'I'm afraid I've not been able to make very much progress,' said Jeremy." "'I've been engaged on the properties of crystals.' "'Oh, yes,' you said. "'Well, of course we are very grateful for any time you feel you can spare,' said Dr. Hopkins. "'And, if I may say so, it is good to see you with a new interest. "'Too much concentration on one thing is conducive to ill humours of the brain.' "'I have medicine,' said Jeremy. "'Yes, of course.' Uh, "'As a matter of fact, since I happen to be going past the apothecary today,' Dr. Hopkins pulled a large, paper-wrapped bottle out of his pocket. "'Thank you,' Jeremy indicated the shelf behind him. "'As you can see, I have nearly run out.' "'Yes, I thought you might,' said Dr. Hopkins, as if the level of the bottle on Jeremy's shelf wasn't something the clockmakers kept a very careful eye on. "'Well, I shall be going, then. "'Well done with the crystals.' I used to collect butterflies when I was a boy. Wonderful things, hobbies. Give me a killing jar and a net, and I was happy as a little lark. Jeremy still smiled at him. There was something glassy about the smile. Dr. Hopkins swallowed the remainder of his tea and put the cup back in the saucer. And now I really must be on my way, he mumbled. So much to do. Don't wish to keep you from your work. Crystals, eh? Wonderful things. So pretty. Are they? said Jeremy. He hesitated, as though he was trying to solve a minor problem. "'Oh, yes, patterns of light. Twinkly,' said Dr. Hopkins. Igor was waiting by the street's door when Dr. Hopkins reached it. He nodded. Um, "'You are sure about the medicine?' 
the doctor said quietly. Oh, yes, sir. Every day I watch him pour out a spoonful. Oh, good. He can be a little, uh, sometimes he doesn't get on well with people. Yes, sir. Very, um, very particular about accuracy. Yes, sir. Which is a good thing, of course. Wonderful thing, accuracy, said Dr. Hopkins, and sniffed. Up to a point, of course. Well, good day to you. Good day, sir. When Igor returned to the workshop, Jeremy was carefully pouring the blue medicine into a spoon. When the spoon was exactly full, he tipped it into the sink. They check, you know, he said. They think I don't notice. I'm sure they mean well, sir. I'm afraid I can't think so well when I take the medicine, he said. In fact, I think I'm getting on a lot better without it, don't you? It slows me down. Igor took refuge in silence. In his experience, many of the world's greatest discoveries were made by men who would be considered mad by conventional standards. Insanity depended on your point of view, he always said, and if it was the view through your own underpants, then everything looked fine. But young Master Jeremy was beginning to worry him. He never laughed, and Igor liked a good maniacal laugh. You could trust it. Since giving up the medicine... Jeremy had not, as Igor had expected, begun to gibber and shout things like, Mad? They said I was mad, but I shall show them all. <laughs> He'd simply become more focused. And then there was that smile. Igor was not easily frightened because otherwise he wouldn't be able to look in the mirror, but he was becoming a little troubled. Now, where were we? said Jeremy. Oh, yes, give me a hand here. Together they moved the table aside. Under it, dozens of glass jars hissed. Not enough power, said Igor. Also, we have not got the mirrors right yet, sir. Jeremy pulled the cloth off the device on the workbench. Glass and crystal glittered, and in some cases glittered very strangely. As Jeremy had remarked yesterday, in the clarity that was returning, now that he was carefully pouring one spoonful of his medicine down the sink twice a day... Some of the angles looked wrong. One crystal had disappeared when he'd locked it into place, but it was clearly still there because he could see lights reflecting off it. "'And we've still got too much metal in it, sir,' Igor grumbled. "'It was the spring that did for the last one.' "'We'll find a way,' said Jeremy. "'Homemade lightning is never as good as a real thought,' said Igor. "'Good enough to test the principle,' said Jeremy.' "'Test the principle, test the principle,' muttered Igor. "'Sorry, sir, but Igors do not test the principle. "'Strap it to the bench and put a good thick bolt of lightning through it. "'That's our motto. That's how you test something.' "'You seem ill at ease, Igor. "'Well, I'm sorry, sir,' said Igor. "'It's the climate disagreeing with me. "'I'm used to regular thunderstorms.' "'I've heard that some people really seem to come alive in thunderstorms,' said Jeremy, carefully adjusting the angle of a crystal. "'Ah, that was when I worked for Baron Finkelstein,' said Igor. Jeremy stood back. This wasn't the clock, of course. There was still a lot more work to do, but he could see it in front of him if he closed his eyes, before they had a clock. This was just an essay to see if he was on the right lines. He was on the right lines. He knew it. Tick. Susan walked back through the motionless streets, sat down in Madame Frout's office, and let herself sink back into the stream of time. She never found out how this worked. It just did. Time didn't stop for the rest of the world, and it didn't stop for her. It was just that she entered a kind of loop of time, and everything else stayed exactly as it was until she'd finished what she needed to do. It was another inherited family trait, it worked best if you didn't think about it, just like tightrope walking. Anyway, now she had other things to think about. Madame Frout turned her gaze back from the rat-free mantelpiece. No, she said, it seems to have gone. It was probably a trick of the light, madam, said Susan. Mostly human, someone like me, she thought. Yes, uh, of course. Madame Frout managed to get her glasses on, despite the fact that the string was still tangled with the button. It meant that she'd moored herself to her own chest, but she was damned if she was going to do anything about it now. Susan could unnerve a glacier, 
All she had to do was sit quietly, looking polite and alert. "'What precisely was it you wanted, madam?' she said. "'It's only that I've left the class doing algebra, and they get restless when they finished.' "'Algebra?' said Madame Frout, perforce staring at her own bosom, which no one else had ever done. "'But that's far too difficult for seven-year-olds.' "'Yes, but I didn't tell them that, and so far they haven't found out,' said Susan. It was time to move things along. "'I expect you wanted to see me about my letter, madam,' she said. Madame Frout looked blank. "'Whoop!' she began. Susan sighed and snapped her fingers. She walked round and opened a drawer by the motionless Madame Frout, removed a sheet of paper, and spent some time carefully writing a letter. She let the ink dry, rustled the paper a bit to make it look slightly second-hand, and then put it just under the top of the pile of paperwork beside Madame Frout, with enough of it peeking out so that it would be easy to see. She returned to her seat. She snapped her fingers again. "'A letter,' said Madame Frout, and then she looked down at her desk. "'Oh!' It was a cruel thing to do, Susan knew, but while Madame Frout was not by any means a bad person, and was quite kind to children, in a haphazard way, she was silly. And Susan did not have a lot of time for silly. "'Yes, I asked if I might have a few days' leave,' said Susan. "'Pressing family matters, I'm afraid. I have prepared some work for the children to get on with, of course.' Madame Frout hesitated. "'Susan didn't have time for this either. She snapped her fingers.' "'My goodness, that'd be a relief,' she said, in a voice whose harmonics went all the way into the subconscious. "'If we don't slow her down, we'll run out of things to teach them. She has been performing small miracles on a daily basis and deserves a raise.' Then she sat back, snapped her fingers again, and watched the words settle into the forefront of Madame Frout's mind. The woman's lips actually moved. "'Why, yes, of course,' she murmured at last. "'You have been working very hard, and... 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 "'And there are some things even a voice of eldritch command can't achieve, "'and one of them is to get extra money out of a head teacher. "'We shall have to think about a little increment for you one of these days.' "'Susan returned to the classroom and spent the rest of the day performing small miracles, "'which included removing the glue from Richenda's hair.' emptying the wee out of Billy's shoes and treating the class to a short visit to the continent of 4X. When their parents came to pick them up, they were all waving crayoned pictures of kangaroos, and Susan had to hope that the red dust on their shoes, red mud in the case of Billy's, whose sense of timing had not improved, would pass unnoticed. It probably would. Fidgets was not the only place where adults didn't see what couldn't possibly be true. Now she sat back. There was something pleasant about an empty classroom. Of course, as any teacher would point out, one nice thing was that there were no children in it, and particularly no Jason. But the tables and shelves around the room showed evidence of a term well spent. Paintings lined the walls and displayed good use of perspective and colour. The class had built a full-size white horse out of cardboard boxes, during which time they'd learned a lot about horses and Susan learned about Jason's remarkably accurate powers of observation. She'd had to take the cardboard tube away from him and explain that this was a polite horse. It had been a long day. She raised the lid of her desk and took out grim fairy tales. This dislodged some paperwork, which in turn revealed a small cardboard box decorated in blackened gold. It had been a little present from Vincent's parents. She stared at the box. Every day she had to go through this. It was ridiculous. It wasn't even as if Higgs and Meekins did good chocolates. They were just butter and sugar, and she scrabbled amongst the sad little scraps of brown paper inside the box and pulled out a chocolate. No one could be expected not to have just one chocolate after all. She put it in her mouth. Damn, 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 damn! It was nougat inside. Her one chocolate today, and it was damned artificial... "'Damn pink and white, damn sickly, damn stupid nougat!' "'Well, no one could be expected to believe that counted. "'This is true. "'A chocolate you did not want to eat does not count as chocolate. "'This discovery is from the same branch of culinary physics "'that determined that food eaten while walking contains no calories.' "'She was entitled to another. "'The teacher part of her, which had eyes in the back of its head, the blur of movement. She spun round. No running with scythes. 
the death of rats stopped jogging along the nature table and gave her a guilty look. Squeak? And no going into the stationery cupboard either, said Susan automatically. She slammed the desk lid shut. Squeak! Yes, you were. I could hear you thinking about it. It was possible to deal with the death of rats, provided you thought of him as a very small Jason. The stationery cupboard. That was one of the great battlegrounds of classroom history, that and the playhouse. But the ownership of the playhouse usually sorted itself out without Susan's intervention, so that all she had to do was to be ready with ointment, a nose-blow and mild sympathy for the losers. Whereas the stationery cupboard was a war of attrition. It contained pots of powder paint and reams of paper and boxes of crayons, and more idiosyncratic items like a spare pair of pants for Billy, who did his best. It also contained the scissors, which, under classroom rules, were treated as some kind of doomsday machine, and, of course, the boxes of stars. The only people allowed in the cupboard were Susan and, usually, Vincent. Despite everything Susan had tried, short of actual deception, he was always the official best-at-everything, and won the coveted honour every day, which was to go into the stationery cupboard and fetch the pencils and hand them out. For the rest of the class, and especially Jason, the stationery cupboard was some mystic magic realm to be entered whenever possible. Honestly, thought Susan, once you learn the arts of defending the stationery cupboard, outwitting Jason and keeping the class pet alive until the end of term, you've mastered at least half of teaching. She signed the register, watered the sad plants on the window sill, went and fetched some fresh privet from the hedge for the stick insects that were the successor to Henry the hamster, chosen on the basis that it was quite hard to tell when they were dead, tidied the few errant crayons away and looked around the classroom at all those little chairs. It sometimes worried her that nearly everyone she knew well was three feet high. She was never certain that she trusted her grandfather at times like this. It was all to do with the rules. He couldn't interfere, but he knew her weaknesses and he could wind her up and send her out into the world. Someone like me. Yes, he'd known how to engage her interest. Someone like me. Suddenly there's some dangerous clock somewhere in the world, and suddenly I'm told that there's... Someone like me. Someone like me. Except not like me. At least I knew my parents. And she'd listened to Death's account of the tall, dark woman wandering from room to room in the endless castle of glass, weeping for the child she'd given birth to and could see every day but could never touch. Where do I even begin? Tick. Lobsang learned a lot. He learned that every room has at least four corners. He learned that the sweepers started work when the sky was light enough to see the dust and continued until sunset. As a master, Lutze was kind enough. He would always point out those bits that Lobsang had not done properly. After the initial anger and the taunting of his former classmates, Lobsang found that the work had a certain charm. Days drifted past under his broom, until, almost with an audible click in his brain, he decided that enough was enough. He finished his section of passageway and found Lutze dreamily pushing his brush along a terrace. Sweeper, yes, lad? What is it you are trying to tell me? I'm sorry. I didn't expect to become a, a, a sweeper. You're Lutze. I expected to be apprenticed to... Well, to the hero. You did? Lutze scratched his beard. Oh, dear. Damn. Yes, I can see the problem. You should have said. Why didn't you say? I don't really do that sort of thing any more. You don't? All that playing with history, running about, unsettling people? No, not really. I was never quite certain we should be doing it, to be honest. No, sweeping is good enough for me. There's something... "'Real about a nice clean floor?' "'This is a test, isn't it?' said Lobsang curtly. "'Oh, yes. "'I mean, I understand how it works. 
The master makes the pupil do all the menial jobs, and then it turns out that really the pupil is learning things of great value. And I don't think I'm learning anything, really, except that people are pretty messy and inconsiderate. Not a bad lesson all the time, said Lutzay. Is it not written? Hard work never did anybody any harm. Where is this written, Lutzay? said Lobsang, thoroughly exasperated. The sweeper brightened up. Ah, he said, perhaps the pupil is ready to learn. Then you don't wish to know the way of the sweeper? You wish to learn instead the way of Mrs. Cosmopolite. Who? We have swept. Well, let's go into the gardens, for is it not written, it does you good to get out into the fresh air? Is it? said Lobsang, still bewildered. Lutze pulled a small tattered notebook out of his pocket. "'In here it is,' he said. "'I should know.' Tick. End of CD 3